0: or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and library strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Chuck Logan at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Minnesota boasts more than its share of homegrown thriller novelists, and Chuck Logan ranks near the top of that list for many. He is best known for his six book Phil Broker series, featuring a larger-than-life military veteran and ex-undercover agent. After The Rain, the fifth in that series, earned Logan a Seamus Award nomination for Best PI Hardcover Novel in 2005. Hollywood adapted his follow-up Homefront for the big screen in 2013, with Jason Statham playing Broker alongside co-stars James Franco and Winona Ryder. Logan's newest book, Fallen Angel, is a gripping standalone. A wounded army pilot, only recently returned from Iraq, struggles to make sense of the incident that brought down her helicopter, and finds herself part of something much larger.
1: First of all, thank you for coming out and foregoing the opening of the World Series. But this is a a very well appointed library and I'd like to thank the Friends of the Library and Club Book for including me in this venue. Now today there was an article posted in MinPost, and I'll kinda key on the mood of that because it says Chuck Logan, the death spiral of the Middle East writer. Okay, so I'm going to try to break this talk into, into two parts and, and, and try to tell a story. And perhaps we could call this story the tale of two phone calls. The first phone call was in May of 1994, when an agent in New York told me that I was now going to be a published author. The second phone call was in late, I believe, 2012. For obvious reasons, I don't keep real close track of that one, and that was the last phone call from New York when they told me it was all over. And perhaps they could find me work as a ghostwriter. Okay, so let's start first with the, uh, the happy phone call. In 1995, I was a part-time artist at the St. At the Paul Pioneer Press. Uh, I had gone half-time in 1985 to try to write, which was unusual because I happened to be in a kind of a unique situation in the St. Paul newsroom with uh, uh, the late Deborah Hall as the executive editor, and she decided to take me under her wing and, and help me try to become a writer. I had absolutely no background in writing. When I talk to high school classes, I say, don't do it the way I did it. The last English class I think I took was in 1959 at Warren High School, and I think I got a D, (laughs) okay? (sighs) And it was even an accident that I was an artist at the Pioneer Press. It was an accident I was in Minnesota. Um, I migrated kind of in a hurry from Detroit in 1969 from uh, when I got out of the service, and I, I, I came to Minnesota. I was on my way to Missoula, Montana. I had signed up to take a test for the smoke jumper service, but I thought I'd stop off and see a friend in South Minneapolis. Well, I got to South Minneapolis and I discovered I'd always worked nights uh, in the factories of Detroit And I'd never seen Star Trek. And Channel 4 was showing Star Trek five nights a week. And the other thing was that I discovered that if you were a veteran in 1969, you could get a year's unemployment in Minnesota, which protected my booze supply. You know? (laughs) And so eventually, I sobered up and was given a handoff after many adventures uh, to an interview at the Pioneer Press because I had done a cover for a journalism review. And so I walked into this room with this outrageous portfolio of underground cartoons that were just, I had no training in art either. I just sort of got into cartooning and illustration. And fortunately, there were these three gentlemen, the executive editor and the two managing editors of the then Pioneer Press and the Dispatch, and their names were Finnegan, O'Grady, and Burnham, three Irishmen, three World War II vets, and my name's Logan. This is not an Irish face. <laughs> my father's real name, I found out late in you know, life, was actually Utech, I never knew him. He was a prize fighter in Chicago, a trainer. Uh, he ran Rainbow Gardens, which was a big fight arena in Chicago, was suspended by the Boxing Commission for fixing fights and wound up, according to the family stories, kind of a hoodlum. And so I had absolutely no qualifications for this job. And something happened that never happens anymore. You know, because I had an Irish name, I had a a combat record, I had a police record. I'd been kicked out of college, I flunked out of college. I went to Wayne State in Detroit, uh, actually an experimental college at Wayne State. And Wayne State had a nationally ranked fencing team and a nationally ranked debate team. I was kicked off, both of them, for drinking. And so what they did was give me a break. They asked me, can you handle an airbrush? Yes, sir. And then I went back to the art department and I asked an artist, I said, what's an airbrush and how does it work? And so quite by accident, I wound up working at the Pioneer Press. And at some point down the line, the book editor asked me to review a book. So I wrote a book review, and after that several reporters came up and said, well, who wrote that for you? And I thought, oh, this is a signal, you know. And so I decided to try to write. I had support from the executive editor, and I didn't know anything about approaching writing, so I thought, well, you should write about something significant you know about, so why don't I write about Detroit in the summer of 1967? because there was a riot and I was in it. Um, One of my fond memories of that experience was blacked out streets, a burning skyline, and the National Guard on patrol, very jumpy, and the top song in Detroit when the riot started was Light My Fire by Jim Morrison. And hundreds and hundreds of radios were turned on the same station. So you had this song echoing through these blacked out canyons. You know. Then some fool on top of an apartment building lit a cigarette. And I discovered what a 50 caliber tracer looked like. So that was Detroit. Good music, 1967 live ammunition. <laughs> and, but I had absolutely no idea you know, what the market was or anything. So I wrote a big novel about Detroit and tried to find a local agent, and people said, you know, and this was about 1987, 88, they said, this story's like licking the bottom of a dirty ashtray, all this interracial stuff and factories and riots, no one's gonna read this. Mind you, this is before LA went up in flames. So I put that under the bed. And so, well, you know, as a young man, I read way too much Norman Mailer, and so I had been in a war, so I thought I would write a, a novel about a war. But I saw a different part of the Vietnam War because then I was was an advisor, so essentially I was in a low rung of the Vietnamese Army. And so I wrote a story and sent it off, and they said, this is incomprehensible to an American audience because you have all these Vietnamese in it. And I said, that was kind of a unique aspect of that experience, there were Vietnamese there. They said, nobody, you know, public educated by, by sort of bad movies and a lot of the stories about Vietnam. I finally decided the only book in English that I really thought was a good story about Vietnam was written by Graham Greene, The Quiet American, because there were real Vietnamese scenarios and real Vietnamese characters. And so a friend of mine, a hunting buddy, who became uh, very well known as John Sanford, he said, why don't you write a thriller? So I said, okay. So I cobbled together a thriller, and this young agent in New York actually sold it. So suddenly, I oh boy, I sold a book. At which point, an editor—this was back in '95—and when editors were more hands-on, this editor at HarperCollins wrote me a single-spaced, twelve-page letter that just eviscerated my story and pointed out all the amateurish stuff. And so I learned to write, rewriting that book in about three months, you know, and then I, okay, but then I embarked on sort of the tail end of the fun part of publishing, which was the tours, you know, traveling around, Um, I'll never forget, I think my first book signing, January 1995, it was in St. Cloud, they used to have stores called Media Play stores. And, you know, I was looking out the window and looking at the weather channel. An ice storm was moving into Washington County. There was sort of a blizzard behind it. So I called the media play store. And some young clerk says, oh no, you know, like the poster's still up. And so I put on my new writer jacket. And by the time I got halfway to St. Cloud, I had to turn the heat onto the defrost to keep the inside of the, the windshield from freezing. Cars were pulled off of the side of the road. I got into St. Cloud, trees were down, the the stoplights were swinging almost horizontal and I find the parking lot. And it looked like a scene from On the Beach. There was actually a car with the lights on, with the door open, deserted in this empty parking lot. So I went and banging on the door and a janitor opened the door, let me in. Ironically, there was a guy that was stranded there that I hadn't seen since 1971, a guy I'd met when I was an organizer for Vietnam Vets Against the War. And so I, I had to dig through the the desks to find the number of the manager. And I called her at home and said, you have to put me up for the night. And so that was my first book signing. <laughs> but there, were, there was, a lot of, it, you know, dealing with New York publishing. For instance, I was supposed to be at a bookstore in Milwaukee, and then they decided to send me to Madison. And so the publicist calls me up and says, we're gonna fly you to Chicago to change planes to go to Madison. And I said, why don't I just rent a car and drive an hour and a half? It's like they don't understand the flyover zone. And then dealing with with line editors, you know, New York, for instance, you know, uh, the editor is is correcting the copy. Interrogative, what is a pole barn? Is that a barn made out of poles? You know what I mean? And so you run into all these kind of things. Um, Somewhere, I had done this series, um, and I got to a point where I got these sort of Mixed messages from an editor I'd been doing books with at HarperCollins said, You know, it sounds like you want to do something more serious. And my agent was telling me, You know, you really should do something more commercial. Okay. So, you know, the math on that is really pretty easy. Serious means uh, down market, right? Because what is serious? Serious is, well, you want to talk about real life? Well, we all know about real life, you know, like uh, no one's gonna get out alive and we're all standing in line, you know? So why don't, you know, commercial is, let's do some escapist stuff, you know? And I was not good at the real escapist stuff. And so I went back and forth trying to figure out a way to come up with you know, what would come next after this series. I sort of took a diversion into writing a book about Civil War reenactors and nobody liked that and then things sort of started to, you know, hobble along. And I I just I remember I was at a, I was at a book signing and this there was a guy who was actually upset that my character had never shot anybody. And I I said, "Look, I said, you know, there's there's people with violent fantasies and people with violent memories, and they probably shouldn't get in arguments together. But I think the money was where the people with violent fantasies wanted to read. You know? And there are formulas out there, and a lot of them turn me off, because you know, one path to success is you start your crime story off with the body, preferably naked, pref- preferably, preferably mutilated, of a woman right? is a sure way to get readers. And I was just totally not interested in writing about anything like that. <clears throat> and about this time, I was, I guess I was being kind of driven nuts by the news, by the war in Iraq, and so I decided I was going to write some kind of a contemporary story. And I was very stubborn about it and I drove my agent nuts. you know. And so finally I came up with a scenario which eventually became this book that's for sale here tonight, Fallen Angel. And <laughs> nobody was interested in reading a book about a wounded female veteran. And I said, well gee, I think someone should write a book about these kind of stories because Nobody's in the military anymore. We're all going to the mall. The mall Coffins are coming back from overseas and nobody seems to know these people. And so I, I was in kind of a quandary and that's when that, that last phone call came. Nobody wants this book. Nobody's even reading the book. They just look at your sales record. This is where we're at now. Now ironically, if you get a call like that and someone tells you it's all over, Maybe you, you know, cut your wrists or I couldn't go out for a drink because I haven't had a drink since 1976. So what I did is that I walked over to a file cabinet and I took out this manuscript that was 20 years old. It was so old that it was hand-lettered, uh, hand-numbered. Hand and, and I only had one copy left. I'd lost all, I, I didn't have the disc, the disc anymore that it was written on. I literally had this pile of paper. And I thought, this is the book they told me I couldn't write. And I said, you know what? If I can figure out a way to publish this, I can write this book now. And so I began to look at that pasta. Possi- I reread this book, How My Mind Worked, 20 years before. And then I got an email from New York. Millennium Films had reoptioned for the third time my novel Homefront. You know, you get a number of film options and you don't pay attention to them because it's never going to happen. And so I said, okay, you know, like, it's another film option. And then no more communication. Several months later, my wife and I were taking a walk. And she said, oh, by the way, I saw something online today that there's a poster advertising a movie of Homefront at the Cannes Film Festival. Nobody in New York told me the movie had been green-lighted, right? Okay, so that's way, you know, this was quicker than a New York Minute. And so then what happens, I brought props, when your story gets turned into that. Now, this was the only good cover HarperCollins ever did. It's sort of an evocative, moody cover suggesting the main character in the book, who's a woman suffering from depression. She's not in the movie. The main (laughs) character is not in the movie because she might upstage the action star. Okay, so I was in no position to turn down a movie deal, right? Because this was like a major movie. And so I had to learn a little bit about... The first thing you learn is that when your story, it's like, it's like Star Trek. You know, your, your book reports to the transporter room to be beamed to the foreign galaxy of Hollywood. Well, your shaggy Northwoods Minnesota cop turns into a ball-headed Brit, and the story takes place in Louisiana. There's about 10,000 more gunshots in the movie than there is in the book, and about 5,000 more F-words, right? But still, you go along with it because if you have have objections to somebody turning your story into a movie, you should not sign a contract. There's an apocryphal story. I think this is true. I'm trying to track it down. There was a very popular World War II novel called The Young Lions you may be familiar with was written by a guy named Erwin Shaw, who got off a boat at Omaha Beach, uh, actually, uh, was it Omaha Beach? Utah Beach, you know, and walked across Europe. And he wrote this book, The Young Lions. And then Marlon Brando bought the film rights and decided to make a movie. And Erwin Shaw's brutal German character, who started out as a nice Austrian ski instructor and became a brutal Nazi, became a gentle, sensitive German because Marlon Brando was playing him. And so Erwin Shaw signed the contract and according to the story, walked onto the set, walked up and knocked Brando cold. Now that's bad form because once once you sign a contract, it's like selling your car, right? If you sell your car to some guy down the street and he paints zebra stripes on it, that's none of your business because you've already made the transaction. And, and there were some real interesting parts to the making of the movie because I thought up this book originally watching my daughter play on the monkey bars at an elementary school in Stillwater. And then when the first trailers came on TV, here was this little girl swinging on monkey bars. You know what I mean? And part of the story was a bad guy, James Franco, stealing the little girl's bunny and mutilating it. And my daughter had a bunny it was based on. And even they had a little black cat like we had. You know what I mean? So we got to go to a premiere. Oh, incidentally, the the people in the big fancy ICM Hollywood office told me there's no premiere that we know of. So, I had to drag in the distribution company and call them up to get the tickets, all that kind of stuff. And so, my daughter got to have her picture taken with Isabella Vladek, you know, with the bunny, the original bunny. And I got to get, at one point, we got lost in a. I had a lead, Winona Ryder, Kate Bosworth, and uh, Omar Benson Miller out of a basement under the theater when we got lost after being on stage. So that was all exciting, plus I got to meet the producers, you know, as well as the stars and stuff. And and I was all right with it, even though it was like, you know, a cut above your average action movie. What are you gonna do? And so I thought, well, you know, HarperCollins at least put out a tie-in edition, so maybe I can get back in the game. You know, I got excited. And so I spent almost a year writing two book proposals. The one I really wanted to do was about the daughter in the story, you know, because my kid had gone to an international scholarship leadership camp two years in upstate New York, where she met kids from all over the world, and plus she'd been on a scholarship uh, thing to Bangladesh, and I thought, gee, what if you had the kid as a teenager, and you have the, you know, Phil Broker and his wife, Nina, growing you know, retired, cranky, old, ex-action people, disappear on a vacation overseas. Everyone gives up on them. And the daughter, who has the resources of a camp like this, which goes back to the 30s, includes diplomats from all over the world, I thought it would be great to write a story about teenagers solving this thing using these resources. Harper Collins said, wow, well, we don't know if this is a young adult novel or an adult novel. And I said, what was true grit? What's the difference? You know. OK, so put that aside. And I thought, well, maybe I should try to capitalize on this by writing another book in the Broker series, which would be a prequel, you know, because if you have characters getting into their 60s, they don't really, you know, jump out of second story windows too well. So I started working on that story, and they didn't really like that either. And so, and then I experimented with something that always gets a laugh, and I thought, I should keep my hand in on this, because, A lot of people are, have, were very successful doing these kind of right wing comic book type stories, you know, so I thought why don't I, I used to be a cartoonist, so why don't I write a, a left wing comic book story? I said I could have this alcoholic Vietnam vet, something I, I've done research on. Terminally alcoholic old vet living up in a cabin on the Canadian border who decides to end it all. And he's so far gone, that he knows that if he quits drinking, he'll die of alcohol shock and delirium tremens. So he throws his booze and his car keys in the lake, settles down to die, and he has these hallucinations, and he figures, I'm dying. And in fact, once he detoxifies, he turns into a left-wing anarchist werewolf. (laughs) And, And decides to go, you know, eliminate the one percent, you know. And I thought, I'll keep that on the side to play with, because that could be fun. But I went back and I got this huge novel out and I, I went through it and I said, you know, I can I can rewrite this, take the training wheels off, and it would probably be a different kind of story. Okay. So when the movie came out, the thing about being, a New, uh, be, being represented in New York is that your life is all about short phone conversations with voices in New York. They kind of tell you what your life is going to be like. You know what I mean? So I didn't really pay any attention to the nuts and bolts of publishing. So I thought, well, this movie's come out. I'm going to publish an ebook. I didn't know anything about publishing an ebook. Now, for those of you interested in self-publishing, there's this whole industry out there that will sell you services. And it's all about them selling you services. So I got hooked up with a bunch and you know they said well you might have a story here you know because I'd gone back to this fallen angel story but you really need like a five thousand dollar editorial edit. You know I said I've written eight books you know what I mean. And so it's not personal, it's business. They were selling me services. But what I didn't understand, and I was finally taken aside by uh, a guy who started a little hybrid independent press, was that if you publish an ebook before you put out a print book, you're, you're, you can't have advanced reader copies. It's not going to be reviewed in Publishers Weekly or, or, or Kirkus or anything. You know, and so I didn't, I mean, I should have known better after, what, 18 years in the business. And so I, but that's what I proceeded to do. I went back and kind of rewrote Fallen Angel. Now, I didn't want to name this book Fallen Angel because it's like my first book that they named in New York was Hunter's Moon. If you go online, there's like, A hundred, you know, gothic rope, you know, bodice rippers, Hunter's Moon, you know. Okay, Fallen Angel. Okay, Fallen Angel, in a sense, connotes a rebellious, disobedient angel that's been cast out of heaven. Fallen Angel was the call sign for a downed helicopter in Iraq. Now, when I was doing research with a guard unit that had been over there, I said, do you really want these young kids on the radio referring to dead, mangled, wounded friends as fallen angels. I mean, because there's an intimation of mortality. Just, there's a reason we used to say May Day, you know? Because the blank verse of, of radio call signs is practical. It's not supposed to be freighted with import, you know? So I had to get used to the new world that I was writing about. And one of the things I wanted to do was talk about the rehabilitate, I mean, write out a legitimate thriller story in the foreground but I wanted it to take place in the atmosphere of the psychological and physical atmosphere of wounded veterans, you know. So, and then I thought, well, the problem with being an old guy is that I could default to my old retro macho BS from the past, but if I try to write a credible female character, you know, I I somewhere turned into a gender traitor here, you know, I thought that would make me stretch a little bit And part of this transition I was going through, I decided I was trying to figure out a way to write female characters without having them be, you know, ninja action figures out of the Hunger Games or, you know, the girl who kicked over the hornet's nest or whatever that was, the dragon tattoo. And on the other hand, not be a projection of male sexual fantasy. You know, and, and a lot of crime writing and stuff, it just, it just goes with the territory. That, you know, the tough protagonist is a ladies' man and all that kind of stuff. And so that was a writing challenge, which I hope that I, I, I tried to you know, learn something from. And I wanted to write about somebody who's not a super patriot or anything. You know, somebody who was a farm kid from North Dakota who joined the Guard to learn how to fly and was willing to do what went along with that? You know. but, but she had practical employment reasons for doing it. And so I got hooked up with the small independent press. And one of the things that happened, which was a whole new experience for me, was that I sent a book to a guy I met at this movie premiere. And he read it. You know, this producer read it. And so I managed to negotiate a film option totally on my own without, you know, without a, a talent agency or anything like that involved, which you know I, th- I enjoyed that a whole lot. That doesn't happen every day. But what I really want to do, I mean, right now I'm writing this prequel, this broker book, which is kind of interesting because I said it in 1979. And, the, and in 1979, everybody knew where the phone was. Remember, it's on the wall, right? And if you were driving down the street and you had to call somebody, you had to stop and get out and find a pay phone and put a court, remember what that was like? And so it's really interesting to backstop yourself and try to put your mind back in that time, you know what I mean? And so I'm finding that to be very enjoyable, so I hope to write, you know, what I call these kind of popcorn cop books in the foreground and then try to get back and write a serious novel, Vietnam novel. Because as I said, in my experience, and I read everything that I could, that had been written about Vietnam, a lot of even the best stories are kind of these close focus American psychodramas that could have been written about fighting Chiricahua, Apaches, or Huck Gorillas in the Philippines. And they left out what I thought was, you know, at least from my perspective, was a very interesting part of that experience, which is living, working, in being in the field alongside the Vietnamese. And one of the stories I tell people, and people just glaze over when when I talk about this stuff. When I, when I first got assigned outside the city of Wei with this Arvin regiment, I was on a, you know, I was on patrol and I'd look at these Arvin soldiers, and they were like in their 30s, some of them in their 40s, you know, guys in the 1st Arvin Division. And I said, what's going on? with these guys, don't they have any young soldiers?" And he says, well, this old sergeant, he said, well, these guys fought the Japanese, and they fought the French. They hate the communists, and they hate us. And so there was this, at least up in that part of the country I was in, there was a lot of old Viet Minh that were anti-communists in the 1st Arvin Division, and they had nobody, no place to go. And at one point, the whole division went over and backed the Buddhists in 1966, when the Buddhists in Wei rebelled in Da Nang and fought the Saigon government. And people don't know about that, you know? And so I thought, well, I'd try to turn that into some kind of a story. And I don't know if, if people are interested in that, but I think it should be told. So at any rate, that's where I sort of wound up at the tail end of this sort of interesting ride I've been on. Part of, the reason, part of the reason I wound up trying to write the thing, I mean, I probably didn't read a lot of popular fiction in the sense that uh, stuff that was real hot genre stuff. One of the books that really impressed me back at the beginning, are you familiar with a, a, a novel called The Tears of Autumn by Charles McCary? a classic espionage story. And essentially The Tears of Autumn was about the Kennedy assassination, how the family of No GM arranged the assassination as revenge for Kennedy cooperating in the assassination of the South Vietnamese president. And so it's sort of a different take on history and there's this there's this thing called system Justification theory. In other words, um, you want to endorse the status quo. And so you're on solid ground when you write stories that, essentially you're saying, it's like when you're raising your kids. Everything's going to be all right, right? Well, in my, in my world of fiction, everything is not all right. You know, what if, what if the bad thing happens to you? You know. And, and so I tried to pursue stories along that vein and try to, to learn stuff. Uh, it's not that I didn't enjoy writing the broker's books. You run into stuff you couldn't believe. Or even like this book that I wrote about Civil War reenactors. I go down to Corinth, Mississippi to hang out with Southern reenactors. Okay. I meet the police chief of Corinth, Mississippi in the basement of the municipal building. I walk in. And he says, Chuck, he says, you see the elevator over there? And I said, yeah. He said, well, we used to have this big rip in the back of it, but we got it repaired. He said, in 1978, the, the then sheriff of Corinth, Mississippi, walked into this building and he was upset. He, he said he was drinking a little bit. And, and he was upset that two cops had arrested his buddy for drunk driving. And he saw those cops getting on the elevator. And he said, I want you to let so and so go. And they said, no, we booked him, we got him good. And they said, he said, I said, I want you to let him go. True story, the guy's telling me this. And they said, no, boom. See, that's where we got the rip in the back of the elevator because he missed the cop and the cop drew his weapon and shot the police chief of Corinth, Mississippi, deader in shit, right where you're standing, Chuck. And he says, welcome to Corinth, <laughs> Mississippi. <laughs> and that was so good, I put it in the book. And you just can't make stuff like that up. I did a book called After the Rain, which involved, they went nuts in New York. I said, I'm going to set this in North Dakota. They said, you can't set a story in North Dakota. I mean, they'd never heard of North Dakota. (laughs) So I have the local sheriff call the sheriff in Cavalier County in North Dakota, because I wanted a location right on the border, because it involved smuggling and border crossing. And so I drove up to Langdon, North Dakota. Never been there, never been in the region. And I thought, well, before I go to the cop shop, I think that I'll look the town over. Small town, doesn't even have a stoplight. You know, what, 1,500, 1,600 people. And I go to the park, and there's the swing set, and the slide, and the merry-go-round, and a perfectly restored 60-foot Spartan missile. Only then did I realized I was in the dead center of the North American continent, and this was the old ICBM belt. And the people in Langdon, North Dakota, talk about the missile time the way the Lakota talk about the buffalo. Because they had three stoplights, they had eight times the people, you know, they built this tremendous infrastructure. And that became part of the story. You know, you drive around the countryside, and the old missile sites, are, ca- are, ca- are still fenced with numbers on them so Russian satellites can verify nothing. It's like there's cages full of this invisible presence. And so missiles, when you see the launch facility where the guys get in the elevator and go down, that's a central launch facility. And they're connected with, with cable to 10 launch sites, actual missiles. And so there was a la- You know, there was a little compound with, uh, you know, like a a complement of Air Force or whatever, and guards, and one guard was walking the perimeter and he flipped a cigarette over the fence and went to bed. In the morning they woke up and they smelled smoke. Only then did they realize they'd built their launch facility 200 feet down in a peat field. And the peat field started burning. The electronic, the cables, the connections to the missiles started burning lights started flashing on and off. Tension international tension. You know, many bottles of Malox were consumed in the Pentagon. You know? <laughs> and it took two years for it to burn out on its own. And I couldn't have made that up at all. You know, and 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 the highway patrolman who took me out and showed me that story, you know, like that was a really good find with him. But then I had to listen to him about the night he chased UFOs down the highway. And that was a, a little bit different. That book, people didn't like that book. I actually had a guy, a reviewer from the uh, the Wall Street Journal, send me an email saying, you know, I, this is a really well-written book, but I just can't deal with the, you know, because the book was eventually about an attack on a nuclear power plant. You know, because living in Stillwater, Minnesota, the thing that bothered me in 2004 was living near Prairie Island. You know, and I started doing research, and it just wasn't very well defended. You know, but he said, you know, this is scenario is too much of a bummer to deal with. Later, after this other book, Homefront, came out, I was at a, I was at a book signing in Red Wing or something, and this one guy started arguing me about, uh, to me, with me about the previous book. And I said, that's over. I'm, I'm trying to sell this book. And he said, you couldn't do what you did in that book now. I said, what do you mean? Now. I said, could I have done it when I wrote the story? And he said, let's talk. And afterwards, we sat on the curb and talked. And he was an engineer who helped design Prairie Island. And he said, your book was widely read through the Nuclear Regulatory Agency. You know, So at least in that sense, if the book didn't sell a lot of copies, maybe, maybe it had kind of an impact. That stuff was really fun. you know. But I just got to the point where I just didn't want to keep you know, one of the one of the interesting things about Fallen Angel is that you're dealing with someone who just happens into somebody's black operation, and then we're all used to reading about cops and robbers. What happens when it's cops and spooks? Where do you go with that kind of a it's more like a three days of the condor type scenario. You know, there's no easy answers to that. So This is where I wind up. Uh, Hopefully, by the end of the year, I'll have another Phil Broker book, which will be a young Phil Broker. I may do a drunken werewolf book. I don't know yet, but that might be fun. You know what I mean? I would like to do a a bookend on the end of the Broker series with the daughter, you know, but that that depends on... um, if I still think there's an audience for that. And someday I will try to write this big Vietnam novel that I just want to get out of my system.
0: With that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Chuck Logan and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering, after all his experiences, what approach does Logan take when trying to publish a novel today?
1: Well, like I say, I, I, was, I was recruited by a guy named Jerry Peterson, who writes under the name of Chris Valen, who started a writer's co-op. And so essentially, I was leery about it. You know, you, you know who Steve Thayer is weatherman, big best-selling. Steve and I kind of wound up in the same boat. Steve decided he wanted to write a book about a leper. The people in New York says, you can't write a book about a leper. You certainly can't call it the leper. Steve said, screw you, I'm gonna write a book about a leper. You know, so he got his last phone call. And he wound up having many adventures in the self-publishing world, and then I got a hold of him and I said, let's look at this Proposition, it's just a co-op. They want, you know, they'd like us both to be part of it. And essentially what this guy did is that, you know, after going through all the hoops and disappointments in self-publishing, he found his own copy editors, he found his own cover artists, he found his own distribution system. You know, and, and so that it's called Conquill Press, as five writers, and that's where I'm at. You know, it's starting over with a small local press.
0: Our next audience member asks if Logan's New York publishers would dictate word counts for his books.
1: The first thing you do is you have to nail down the concept. And it helps if you solve the problems in the beginning when they're small. You know, so a standard genre thriller is probably between 90 and 110,000 words. You know, that I usually came in at around 110, you know, about 400 page novel. And, and uh, by the time you've written a couple of books, you get a feel for what works in terms of where the ungainly parts are. You know, I usually have, when I get a manuscript done, I go through and I, I go on a hunting expedition to kill all the cliches. You know, then I go through and I kill all the good writing. You know what I mean? The stuff that I really like, you know. My wife got rid- good at writing OW on pages. OW, overwriting, you know. And so you gradually learn to sort of trim down the purple stuff and learn how to tell. It's amazing when you're, when you're at the very beginning how it's almost like the old World War II movies about the submarine that's stuck on the bottom and they have to jettison weight. It's amazing how kicking, 50, 80, 90 pages out of a story will make it buoyant. But you have to learn to do that. You have to get kind of ruthless. Um, When I first started writing, I I was a disciplinarian. I would just work for so many hours every day. And I I found out that that I would throw about 90% of that away or more. And so I had to learn to think about what I was doing instead of just writing like crazy and you eventually you learn it's a trade you know and then it it just depends it it depends how much detail you want to get into you know like like if I do my if a writer does their job correctly what they're trying to do is make you do 90 percent of the work you know because I want to lead you into a situation where you're you're engaging something that you have experienced or would like to experience and that then when you think about it, you start filling in the details. You know, that's the trick to inducing this sort of, uh, this, this relationship between the reader and the writer, you know, is how to touch those little points of imagination that bring you into a story. So you thought, you know, I'm actually in this story and moving with it, you know? And perhaps being old fashioned, you know, being a digital immigrant, the idea of having a book you can page back easily and reread something as opposed to whatever. I mean, I haven't got a Kindle yet. I suppose I, I should get one. You know. And then you just make these kind of general decisions like probably the book I'm writing now, I'm not even thinking about people born after 1980. You know what I mean? Because we don't share the same intellectual landscape. I don't understand what postmodernism is at all. You know what I mean? I suspect it has something to do, to earn your chops as a postmodernist, you sort of have to deconstruct everything that was important in my life. You know? And I know our history was more exciting in the 60s and 70s. I certainly know the music was better, right? But you can't, can't say that, you know what I mean? And, and so you just start limiting, the, you know, Hopefully, there's a lot of baby boomers around. I mean, I don't see a lot of young people here tonight, and they're gonna be reading for a while, and they still remember the joy of reading actual books. And so I suppose that's the audience. At least, at least there's some kind of common language we have in terms of the past, you know.
0: This question asker wonders what advice Logan would give to aspiring writers. One
1: of, the, one of the most enjoyable things I've done in the last couple of years is I started out with a group of sixth graders, the advanced reader-writers, in, a, in an elementary school, and followed it through and took them through the end of uh, junior high, <clears throat> which is kind of interesting because uh, it, was, it was kind of an, inter- it was a, a, an open school program in Stillwater. So I went into the principal and I said, we're going to read the unabridged Huck Finn, now in a lot of schools that would have made people a little nervous. And I said, we're going to read Huck Finn straight. We're not going to water it down. And, you know, we'll get the permission of the parents because I wanted them or the way I put it to them I said In Stillwater there's a monument by the courthouse. And and it's dedicated to members from Stillwater that joined the First Minnesota Regiment. And history is important because what those 262 guys did in 10 minutes at Gettysburg possibly changed the course of the war. And if they would have failed and other people would have failed that, you know, that day and the next day, there would have been no Getty Ber- Gettysburg address. Probably there would have been no Huckleberry Finn, but some of those guys actually came back and in the 18, I can't remember the exact date, 1883 or 87, read the exact language we're going to read now. And I was trying to draw them into a connection to history. So I, you know, I said, you know, I wrote the N word on a board and I said, you're gonna read this 215 times. We don't have to bandy it about, about, but this is the way You know, the man wrote the book in the context of his times, and that's the way I want you to read it and understand it. And they kind of got it. And then we went to junior high, and I had to deal with English teachers. And they recommended some books, which were to me like Dick and Jane. And I said, no, we're gonna read Catcher in the Rye. They said, you can't read Catcher in the Rye. It's got the F word in it, it's got sort of slightly homosexual overtones. So I had to go to the principal and get the parents to sign off, and then we read you know, Catcher in the Rye. And all the time I was trying to, you know, I was saying, look, you know, the, this is all about learning critical thinking, which is different than the thinking of critics, you know what I mean? The third year, I was all hot to read Moby Dick, but they were ahead of me. And they, they organized themselves, and they said, no, uh, let's read The Book Thief. I don't know if you're familiar with The Book Thief. I said, okay. And then I said, okay, what do you have in common with the, the little girl in this story? And they didn't know what I was talking about. And I let them stew for a couple of weeks till they t- finally figured out, oh, she's in a country at war, and we're in a country at war, but in a different way. I said, okay. And then a couple of weeks later, they all got together and said, we don't want to read this book anymore because we're studying the Holocaust, we're reading Anne Frank, and we, there's the voice of the narrator death is too frivolous for the subject matter. And I said, right, just because it's a book, you know, or just because the guy's wearing a suit or whatever it is, don't accept it on face value. You know, make your own decision. Learn to think critically about that. And so the last year I was with them, I gave them a real ordinary little volume called The Readers' Manifesto. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It was originally, an essay in Atlantic, and you know, was published as a short novella, and it's criticism, and this guy Myers, who I think is an Asian linguist or something, it, it, he essentially eviscerates American literary writers. His theme is, if you think the writing is hard to read and drags and you can't follow the story, it's not because you're too dumb to rise to the level of American literary writing, you're right, it's bad writing, you know what I mean? And, and so what I was trying, it was sort of like playing Socrates, I was trying to corrupt their minds. You know, like you say, you know, using movies as an example, I said, okay, go watch The Social Network, which you all understand because you're all into that world, you know, Facebook. And then go watch the independent film Winter's Bone, you know, kind of the breakout role for Jennifer Lawrence. I said, these two stories are taking place at the same time in the same country. But you don't see yourself in one of them and you see yourself in the other one. And so just think about the difference in terms of just the way people live. And it, at, the end of, at the end of junior high, these kids took what? the principals award the music award the you know all the ap excellence awards this little gang of kids you know so i was really proud of them and i really enjoyed it and when we started out at first they were shy i made them stand up on their desks to read things i made them sit up straight if anybody smarted off i said you get thrown out of here that's the end if i throw you out of here you never come back in this room and they went with the program they called they called a class Huck with Chuck. I got such a kick out of it, you know what I mean? And I was just trying to get them to think a little bit outside the box, you know, and, and try to explain how Twain's novel, when he first wrote it, was castigated by the literary establishment, because it was crude, because he was trying to tell a story through the perspective and language of an illiterate river kid, you know what I mean? And I said, sometimes history is like that, I said, you know, a lot of you have read, you know, Jane Austen. So what if what's his name Darcy, the the gentleman? So, you know, after the story, Darcy's recalled to his regiment and is sent to fight in the war of 1812 and and is killed at the Battle of New Orleans by some illiterate backwoods guy who's Huck Finn's great uncle. You know, it doesn't really go well with your masterpiece theater, but life is like that sometimes, you know. Any rate, long answer to a to a question. I tell the kids, figure out where are you, what's going on, and why does it matter? And being able to engage with stuff and don't take anything for granted. And and in a way, when you're in junior high, you don't have any room to talk back. You know, and as long as they were on task, they could say anything in my little group, you know what I mean? They didn't get a chance to challenge teachers. You know, and they wanted to, they wanted to discuss things and they weren't allowed to. So hopefully I gave them a little bit of a head start. You know, I was exhausted. I didn't follow it into high school because there were more English teachers. You know, I didn't want to deal with it.
0: Our last question of the night is whether Chuck Logan knows where his novels will end when he first sits down to write them how
1: long does it really take to get to know people in real life? When you're writing a book, you're getting to know people you're making up. You know, and so in a sense, you really don't really know what's happening on page three until you write page 400. You've you've given these these characters a chance to develop and marinate and roll around in your imagination. you have kind of a general idea, but you're always surprised. And that's the fun of it. I mean, it's, you know, writing should be like cooking. You know, it's a recipe. What's it involve? It involves dialogue, you know, narrative description, uh, you know, character development, you know, so you should be able to just put all that together. But in writing, you have to subject, you know, it's like cooking, you gotta subject it to tremendous heat and unless it can survive the tremendous heat, then it's going to break down, you know, and it's not going to be good. So it's always an adventure figuring out, you know, what the people are really going to say, what they're really going to do. When you're really writing, you're working 18 hours a day. You're writing through 100, 150 pages a day constantly, for a month, month and a half. I mean, that's when you're, I suppose, you're in the zone. You know, it's sort of hard on your life, but you know, I once went to picked my daughter up to take her to swim practice. And when I walked her out to the car, I realized, fortunately, it's not that far to her school at the time, the laptop was sitting on top of the prelude. I had driven off with my laptop on top of the car because I was so distracted in what I was thinking about. And, and, and you do it because you got to do it. I mean, there's no sense in doing it if you think you're going to get anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's just no, there's just no excuse for it. Thank you all for coming and missing the World Series.
0: That wraps up our Rum River Library event with Chuck Logan in Anoka County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Alex Pate and Tish Jones at 7 p.m. Monday, November 2nd at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Authors Alex Pate and Tish Jones come together for an evening of conversation about their writing, and the African-American experience in Minnesota. Pate is a senior editor of and Jones, one of the 43 contributors to Blues Vision, a landmark anthology showcasing the unique vision and reality of Minnesota's diverse African-American community. Meet Pate and Jones, hear questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may enjoy them too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.